0: Open your Bibles up to uh, Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26. We're looking at verses 17 through 29 this morning with our focus on verses 26 through 29. When someone uh, passes away in this country, it is our habit for their survivors to write out a short account of their life and to have it read at their memorial or funeral service. And we call that an obituary, right? We call it an obituary. It's a, it's a way to sort of summarize a person's life in, in a few paragraphs, so as we begin together this morning, it's always appropriately to ask, if you were to write out your own obituary, what would you want to be remembered for? Well, it is about your life that you would like those who, uh, who remain beyond to remember you for. How do you want to be remembered? And Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, in effect wrote out his own obituary And he did it by transforming the simple and traditional Jewish Passover into something which his followers from that night forward down to this very morning here at Foothill Bible Church gather together in order to remember what he has done for them. The Lord's table, a communion, is a ceremony of remembrance, a ceremony of remembrance. And this morning we're going to look at the institution of that by the Lord Jesus Christ there on that night, that Thursday night of Passion Week. So I want to focus, as I said, on verses 26 to 29, but we need to get there, and um, so we'll do that sort of quickly with some background material by which we'll move rapidly through verses 17 through 25. We've looked rather extensively at, at verses 1 through 16. So 17 here to 25, I just want to look at you quickly with you and just... Matthew moves through it very quickly himself, and so I'm not going to labor much here either. But verses 17 to 19 is really the preparation period, the preparation time. It's Matthew's very short account of it. And now let me read it for you. But what stands out for me in these verses, 17 to 19, is the wisdom of the Savior. I've said it from this pulpit over and over and over again. Jesus said, we're to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves, and he manifests the reality of that saying in his own life on multiple occasions when he uh, utilized just good uh, wisdom in how he conducted himself. We have another incident of it here in the preparation. So verse 17, it says, Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to a certain man... And say to him, the teacher says, my time is near. I am to keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. The disciples did as Jesus directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Very simple and brief account. We look at the other Gospels. What we do find is that it is the disciples repeatedly wanting to know where the Passover will be celebrated. And Jesus, in a very um, cagey fashion, is is uh, withholding that information. And the reason he's withholding that information is because Judas is the one who really wants to know where it's going to be because Judas has already made his bargain with the devil and is seeking to betray Jesus at a time when he is separate from the crowds, no better time than the celebration of the Passover itself. So Jesus arranges, I believe he arranged there probably on the, on Wednesday of the Passion Week, the prior day, the Silent Day of the Passion Week, I think Jesus there arranged for this rather unique sign of a servant carrying a water pot. That uh, John and James, he says, you into the city, you look for this guy, and you follow him to the house, and uh, say to the owner of the house, um, you know, where is the room that has been prepared for us that we might come and celebrate? Many believe, and I am with them, that uh, the owner of this particular home would have been the mother of John Mark. So I think this uh, this upper room, located in the in the uh, on the western hill of the city of Jerusalem, a very large uh, home. I've uh, I've been in the airspace of uh, of that room, not in the actual room, of course, but uh, but in the airspace of that room, and it's a pretty uh, pretty neat place to be. But there, uh, G- he, uh, John and uh, Peter prepare for the disciples to come uh, later and uh, and to take the. Celebration together. When they do gather, verse twenty. When evening came there on Thursday, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve disciples. As they were eating, he said, "Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me." Being deeply grieved, they each one began to say to him, "Surely not I, Lord?" He answered and said, "You dipped his hand with me, and the bowl is the one who will betray me. The Son of Man is to go." just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who was betraying him, said, surely it's not I, Rabbi. Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. Again, just a very brief account of the event of that night, John's gospel gives us a much fuller account. Luke fills in details. Mark gives us a little help as well. But there they gathered for the traditional Passover meal. And uh, early in that evening, Jesus reveals, uh, sovereignly reveals, that uh, one will betray him. And he sovereignly, of course, knows who that one is, uh, Ju- Judas himself. And so he, he expresses that uh, to them, of course, um, They're too busy arguing with one another about who's going to have the best place at the Passover table, right? Who's the greatest? They're still embroiled in that uh, long-running dispute. But he reveals that to them, and they are still obtuse to the whole thing and deeply grieved by it, and say uh, to him, one right after another, Notice, surely not I, Lord, surely not me, not I, Jesus revealing here, supernaturally, his knowledge that it is Judas that will betray him. Notice Judas's response. Surely not I, teacher. The other 11, surely not I, Lord. Judas can't bring himself to call him Lord. Surely not I, teacher. And Jesus says to him, Judas, you condemn yourself by your own words. A little bit later, Jesus, of course, passes the sop to Judas and says, what you do, do quickly, and Judas gets up and departs from the feast to go off and to find the authorities that they might come back and arrest Jesus. Judas is gone by the time Jesus institutes the actual Lord's Supper. As you and I know, Judas does not partake in the Lord's Supper, although Judas does benefit from the foot washing. So Jesus did wash his feet, the feet of the betrayer. I think Matthew includes this uh, for us, beloved, this section here, in particular, verse 24, because he wants us to be absolutely dead, sure, certain that Jesus was not caught by surprise by Judas' treachery, nor was Judas absolved of his crime, even though it is according to the predetermined uh, plan and foreknowledge of God. Judas is not absolved of his crime. He bears the guilt of it. Judas, or excuse me, Jesus himself confirming Judas's betrayal. So Jesus' prediction, revealing his sovereignty over that event. It takes us uh, still by way of background to the whole issue of the Passover, Right? the Passover feast. The Passover celebration is the oldest of the Jewish customs. It predates the law of Moses. It predates the law of Moses. In the first century, of course, it was to be celebrated every year, right? It was one of the mandatory celebrations. And uh, by the time of the first century, the uh, Passover Seda, which uh, the word Seda just means order of service, uh, would have uh, the following elements to it. And Jesus, of course, transforms the meaning of a couple of those elements, as we'll deal with here in a few minutes. But you, the picture is that the celebrants would be reclining around a table called a triclinium. It's a, a U-shaped table, a rather low table. There would be cushions. They would stretch out on their left elbow, and that would, uh, that would provide their right hand to reach into the middle for the various... Um, aspects of the meal, the banquet that would be served, that would allow the servants to come in and out and bring the various courses, clear the dishes, that sort of thing. So they would be uh, laying around that table there. You get an idea of well as how Jesus would wash their feet. So they are there at the triclinium. The uh, ceremony of the Passover itself was was elaborate. It would include ritualistic hand washings. It would include various set prayers. It would include uh, the singing of uh, certain psalms. The meal itself would be marked by the taking of four cups of wine. So there were four specific cups of wine that were drunk. It was a red wine that they would drink. It was a diluted red wine. It would be cut with warm water, uh, two portions water, one portion wine. So it was, uh, it was, uh, and each of these uh, have a certain uh, ceremonially uh, important aspects to them, they would eat of the uh, the Paschal lamb, it would be, it would be a roasted lamb. They would have a certain bitter herbs dipped in salt water, and all of these things were designed to remind them of their days in Egypt and then god 's deliverance uh, through the exodus. There would be a sweet mixture of apples and nuts that they would uh, partake of, and of course they would have unleavened bread. The unleavened bread would be uh, kind of a large, crisp, almost cracker-like uh, substance. So these would be the basic components of the Passover meal. The bread itself uh, used throughout the Old Testament to, uh, to illustrate and speak of God's provision for his people, right? God provides. Man does not live by bread alone, but by what? every word that comes from the mouth of god so bread uh, is symbolized for them god's provision for them both physically and of course the uh, jesus himself as the greater bread of life the wine was a was a symbol of joy and uh, in particular it pointed forward to the joy of the nation when they would uh, be in messiah's kingdom the actual passover uh, feast itself would be presided over by the father of the home. He would be the host of the feast and the uh, various um, uh, courses, as it were, would be interrupted, as I said, by the singing of what's known as the Hallel Psalms. So that's Psalm 113 through Psalm 118. So they would eat a little, they would pray a little, they would sing a little and, then, and so forth. And that would be their meal. Here in this context, uh, you're probably or perhaps thinking to yourself well where's the family aspect here what's going on here why aren't they celebrating with their own families well in uh, in this time period a a rabbi and his disciples would uh, could be considered uh, intricately related to each other and thus they would fulfill the role of the family and so they could take the meal together, and that's exactly what's going on here. There is a family. It is the, it is the family of Jesus and his disciples. And, of course, Jesus, in that uh, situation as the rabbi, he fulfills the role of the father and the host of the feast. So he is the one who, who is, will pass out the various cups and will say the prayers and break the bread and distribute it and all those kinds of things. Jesus fulfills the role here of the father of the feast. Now interestingly Matthew doesn't include in his account but uh, but Paul tells us and we are we are dependent on Paul for this that twice during the taking of the meal that Jesus instructed them that they are to do this in remembrance of him. We find that in 1 Corinthians 11:24 and 25 that the uh, for the passing of the bread and for the drinking of the cup they are to do this in remembrance of him. So there is a there is an important uh, transformation going on here of this basic Paschal uh, feast that Jesus is is saying that these particular elements are going to take on new meaning. In particular, of course, we know the bread and the cup. So what I was um, kind of thinking about and wanted to to bring to you this morning as we are going to partake of, of the Lord's table together, and I thought it would be appropriate being here in this passage, is to ask a couple of questions and then give some help in answering those questions for you. And the question I want to ask you is, is, what do you do during communion while the elements are being passed? What do you do while the elements, what are, what are you planning to do in, you know, in another 45 minutes or so when we, when we pass these elements? What are you going to do? What are you planning to do? Maybe another question. What are you supposed to do? Right? Maybe we should answer that one first, right? What am I supposed to do? And then, then I'll plan on doing it. But but I think, beloved, so often we, we, we'll come to this and uh, we celebrate typically once a month, right? First Sunday of the month. And we come to this and, and we come to it without a whole lot of planning. Come to a whole lot of thought. We just sort of arrive at it. So this morning, I think, it, I think it's good. Good to think about. How do do we fulfill the command to to do this in remembrance of me? Twice, Paul tells the church at Corinth, Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. So what does that mean? How do we do it? And that's what I want to look at this morning. I want to spend my time here in verses 26 to 29 and look at that with you and, and suggest to you three spiritually strengthening activities three spiritually strengthening activities that we should undertake when we celebrate communion. Hey, I think Jesus gives us in this passage three spiritually strengthening activities that we should do as we come to the Lord's table together. All right? So, let's take a look at him. First, in verse 26, we should recall his sacrifice. The first spiritually strengthening activity is to recall the sacrifice of Christ. Verse 26, while they were eating, Jesus took some bread and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Take and eat, this is my body. Now, let's clear up something right away. The uh, the breaking of the bread. The breaking of the bread was for the purpose of handing it out, okay? It was for the purpose of distributing the bread. This was the, this was the culturally done way to do it. The, the, uh, the uh, father of the home, the president of the feast, would, would sit up from his reclining position and he would, he would break the bread and then it would be handed out to the various people, okay? The breaking of the bread is not designed to, to speak about uh, the effect of the crucifixion on his body. Okay? That's not what it's about. He didn't break the bread so, he can, so that everybody could later say and understand, oh, yeah, okay, so uh, the, I broke the bread, and so that's my, that was his crucifixion. That's not what it's about. In fact, um, John is pretty clear that not a bone of him was broken. Right, so sometimes we talk about you know Jesus was broken for us, and, and it's okay to say that as long as we understand what it is we're communicating. But specifically, not a bone of his was broken. That was prophesied in Psalm 34 and verse 20. John in John 19:36 is very very clear to tell you that prophecy came true. You remember the soldiers came and with the big clubs and they smashed the legs. Of the two thieves, but Jesus, they did not break a bone in his body. Why? Because the Paschal lamb could not have any broken bones. Exodus chapter 12, verse 46, very, very clear that the Passover lamb could not have any of its bones broken. Jesus, as the the fulfillment of all of that, no broken bones for him either. So he says here, this is my body, right? This is my body. And uh, Luke uh, twenty-two nineteen uh, lets us know that he said, in addition to that, which is given for you? Which is given for you? Now, the bread did not become Jesus' body. The bread did not become his body at this place. The bread represents his body. It represents his body, and in fact, just grammatically, the uh, the bread is is masculine. That this is neuter. Uh, probably a better way to understand it is this broken thing, which represents my body, is given for you. The broken bread, as it's passed out, some. It just symbolically stood for Jesus' body or more precisely for, for Jesus giving himself sacrificially for his people. And notice uh, Jesus wants them, according to Paul, that whenever and wherever they ate the bread to be reminded of his body that was to be sacrificed for them. Beloved, it's through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that we receive all of our blessings, is it not? All of the riches of the grace of God is extended to his people because of the sacrifice of Christ, because he has given himself in our place. Whether they be the physical blessings of common grace or the manifold spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, they come as a result of the sacrifice of Christ. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father only because of, by virtue of, the sacrificial death of Christ. He has purchased it for us. So, when we eat the bread, I think we should take time to, to think about some of the blessings that, ha, that flow to us, that have been secured for us by Christ. And thank him for them. Now, it may be blessings that, that have, have flowed to you since the last time you participated in this meal. It may be the blessings that are continually ours in terms of the, of the accomplishment of our redemption. But we ought to take the time to think about. So during the passing of the elements, you know, when you're holding that bread in your, in your hand, think about. Recall the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and thank God for them. So recall his sacrifice, okay? Secondly, rejoice in the new covenant. Recall his sacrifice. Secondly, rejoice in the new covenant. Verse 27, and when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. Now, the cup that he passed around here would have been the third of the four cups of the Passover feast, right? The third of the four cups. It was called the cup of blessing. It's called the cup of blessing. Actually, Paul refers to it as such, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16. And it it concluded the, the, uh, the eating of the main part of the Passover meal. It would have that third cup. Luke uh, sells us that. Luke 22, verse 20, after they had eaten. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-five. 25, after supper, Paul says. So this is the third of the four cups, right? Now, traditionally, and, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to take you to Exodus chapter 6. Traditionally, these four cups symbolized the four promises of God given to Israel in Exodus chapter 6 and verses 6 and 7. So Exodus chapter 6 verses 6 and 7, there are four promises that are given to the nation and, and they're given to, uh, by God to the nation prior to his, you know, his deliverance of them. And then as they celebrate the Passover, to remember this great deliverance, each of these cups symbolizes one of these four promises. So here they are, verse 6, Vexus chapter 6. Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord and, number one, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. That's number one promise. And, promise two, I will deliver you from their bondage. Promise three. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Promise four. Then I will take you for my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. So there are the four promises there, right? Number one, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Two, I will deliver you from their bondage. Three, I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and great judgment. And number four, I will take you from my people and I will be your God. Each of the cups relates to these promises. So this is the third cup, and it relates to the third promise here. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgment. And so uh, back here in, uh, in Matthew, uh, chapter uh, 26 again, what we see is that Jesus takes this third cup here, and he, he kind of transforms it, and it becomes symbolic for the shedding of his blood, which purchases the redemption of his people. right, Matthew 26 and in verse 27, when he had taken a cup and given thanks, the third cup, he gave it to them and said, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. right. So this is the cup of redemption that they share together, the cup of redemption. As we take of the cup, we are, we are taking of the cup of redemption. We are, to, we are to remember the redemption. Now, notice he says in verse 28, For this is my blood of the covenant poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The blood of the covenant. Now, recall with me the first covenant, right? Mosaic's covenant, the Mosaic covenant, Moses' covenant given at Sinai. And you remember the covenant was ratified at Sinai through blood. Exodus actually 24, verses 6 and 8. Well, we got time, I think. We'll do it. Let's go. Exodus 24, verses 6 and 8. Probably worth uh, being reminded of. Exodus 24, beginning in verse 6, Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant, which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So when Moses ratified the old covenant with The nation of Israel, notice he sprinkled blood, both on the altar, which symbolized God's faithfulness to his promises, and upon the people, which signified their obedience. And he calls it the blood of the covenant. The blood of the covenant. Blood was a necessary part of the Mosaic covenant, because it is only through the blood that atonement is provided to his people right leviticus 17 and verse 11 without the shedding of blood there is no what forgiveness of sin okay but there's a problem with the old covenant and the problem with the old covenant is that it's inadequate to permanently atone for the people it doesn't do the job permanently it's only temporary and it has to be repeated right Year after year after year, it had to be done. In fact, uh, the writer to the Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 4, he tells us because it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So there is a reality that that under the old covenant, it had to be done over and over and over and over again. A new covenant is needed. A permanent covenant is needed. A covenant superior to the Mosaic covenant is needed. And God prophesied just such a covenant, 600 years before Jesus, through the lips of the prophet, or the pen, I guess you'd say, of the prophet uh, Jeremiah. So Jeremiah 31, and I'll turn you there, Jeremiah 31 records this for us. What I want you to see through all of this is, is that Jesus is taking the history of his people, and in this He's, he's transforming it and, and infusing it with new and fuller meaning that carries on to us. Jeremiah 31, and beginning in verse 31, the prophet writes, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand, to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. The people were looking for the new covenant. They were living and operating under the Mosaic covenant, the old covenant. But they were looking for that new covenant that had been prophesied six centuries earlier. And this long-awaited new covenant has two really important key features for them and, of course, for us as beneficiaries of it by virtue of our union with Christ. And the first feature is the indwelling spirit in verse 31. I will put my law within them and on their heart. I will write it, Jeremiah says. Now think with me. The law of God under the old covenant was written where? It was on tablets of stone. It was on tablets of stone. It was external to them. But under the new covenant, the people of God have the law internalized. And in fact, uh, Ezekiel chapter 36 and verse 27, speaking of the new covenant, he says there, I will put my spirit within you. The law will be written upon the hearts of the people of God. It will be within them by virtue of the indwelling spirit of God. What that means is, is that what the Mosaic covenant lacked is now been satisfied. And that is both the internal motivation and the power to live a life pleasing to God. By virtue of the indwelling spirit of God who lies within us. That is an amazing reality. When we take of the elements together, we are, we are recalling this incredible reality that the law no longer sits above us on a tablet of stone to judge us, but the Spirit of God has taken up residence within us and has written the law on our hearts, and we now have the motivation to live a life pleasing to God and the power to live that life. We have what the, those under the old covenant not, did not have. They could not fulfill their greatest aspirations. They would continually fall short. So it's the indwelling spirit. Beyond that, the promise is for full forgiveness in verse 34. Right? For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. Now, again, think with me about the old covenant. The terms of the Old Covenant were you had to bring a sacrificial animal on a regular basis. Every time you bring the sacrificial animal and you bring them into the temple precincts, and believe me, the animals can smell the blood and they're not happy to be there. And it's an incredibly uh, traumatic place for, for both worshiper and for animal. And they would be butchered there. They would be slaughtered there as a continual reminder that full and complete forgiveness had not yet come. And it would be again, and again, and again, and again. Throughout your lifetime, you would continue to bring this bloody sacrifice But now what Jesus is saying under the terms of the new covenant, what Jeremiah is saying and Jesus fulfills under the terms of the new covenant, right, is that the suffering servant of God will, according to Isaiah 53 and verse 11, will justify the many for he will bear their iniquities. No need to slaughter the goat or the bull or the ram over and over and over and over again. Because why? Well, because the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world is a once and for all sacrifice. Once and for all. That night in the upper room, back to Matthew 26, Jesus tells his disciples, the words are recorded in Luke twenty two twenty. 20, but he tells his disciples that he is inaugurating the long-awaited new covenant. It has come. That which they have looked for, the the, the uh, faithful among the nation have looked for for six centuries, has now come, and with it the prog- the promise of a full and complete pardon from sin. Right, a pardon that cannot come though without the shedding of blood, without the shedding of blood, and the. Uh, sobering reality is, of course, that it's no longer the blood of an animal, but it's the blood of the very Son of God himself. He has shed his blood that we might have full and complete forgiveness. So when we take the bread, recall the sacrifice of Christ. When we drink of the cup, rejoice in the reality that the new covenant is here. Rejoice in that reality. The future promise, that which lay future to the people of God, is now a present reality for us. Right? The Spirit of God resides in you this morning, if you're his child. Can you conceive of that? The Spirit of God resides in you. And by the indwelling spirit of God, you have been adopted into the family of God. You have become a son of God. You have, you have now the same status before God as Christ the Son. You share his righteousness. Full and complete forgiveness for you. Now and eternally. That is an incredible amount of meaning packed into a half an ounce of grape juice, right? Because it's not about the juice. The juice is merely the reminder of this most incredible reality. Recall this sacrifice, rejoice in the new covenant, and then, third and finally, we should reflect upon the coming kingdom. Reflect. Upon the coming kingdom, verse 29, but I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. I don't know that they uh, understood exactly what he was saying here. I suspect they didn't. But this is an incredible ray of hope in the midst of an otherwise difficult meal. Right? I mean, the precursor to all of this is one of you is going to betray me. Not I, Lord, I'd never betray you. Peter, Satan has demanded to sift you, but I've prayed for you. Right? I'm going to die, he tells them. Incredibly somber and and solemn occasion. Verse 29, but, but there's this ray of hope. But I say to you, I'm going to die, but I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. There's a reunion coming. Jesus tells us there's a reunion coming. A reunion for them, by extension, a reunion for us. By the way, this is the fourth cup and the fourth promise back there in Exodus 6, right? The fourth promise in Exodus 6. I will take you for my people and I will be your God. When finally does God take them as his people and he will be their God? The coming of the kingdom. When Messiah's kingdom finally arrives. And what Jesus is telling them here, and by extension what he's telling us, is that when reunited, they will drink again the fruit of the vine in his father's kingdom. There's going to be an incredible celebration in his father's kingdom. By the way, he says, I will drink it new with you. When the, uh, when the kingdom comes, when, the, when he drinks again with his people in celebration, it's not going to be the regular old wine, drunk in the regular old way. He uses the word kinos, new, new of quality, unused, unknown, unheard of. I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine again from now on until the day when I drink it in a way unheard of with you in my Father's kingdom. Something beyond our imagination. When when we are reunited with the Savior in his kingdom, it is going to be beyond any expectation, any imagination that we have. And by the way, I have a very good imagination when it comes to the kingdom. And Jesus says it's going to... Far and away, strip off anything that you could imagine. Coming of the kingdom of God is an interesting event. For some, it's a time of devastation and destruction, isn't it? I mean, that's what he says here in in uh, chapter thirty or chapter twenty-five when he talks about the coming of the kingdom. Right? Verse 30 of chapter 25, Throughout the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place they will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Verse 41, where he says, And I say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire that has been prepared for the devil and for his angels. So for some, the coming of the kingdom is going to be a time of incredible uh, undoing. But, but, Jesus says, For you. For you. For those who are my children, for for those who are my disciples, it is going to be a celebration, the likes of which you can't even imagine. It's gonna be that good. What is the the greatest thing that you can imagine? Right? What's the what's the happiest moment you can imagine? I think typically uh, it's a, a wedding for most. They think about a wedding. It's you know, the pageantry of the wedding and so forth, but it's, but it's actually normally the banquet that goes with it. <laughs> right? And, uh, and in, the, in the first century, for sure. I mean, these people were, were, um, were subsistence farmers and fishermen for the most part. So a wedding feast was a big deal. And it's interesting, I think, that the prophets, uh, when, they, when they describe the coming kingdom, often use the language of a feast or a banquet or a marriage celebration. Because why? Well, because it resonates. It resonates as, a, as this great opportunity to be together and to rejoice and to, and to experience the fellowship and all of that sort of thing. So, for example, in Isaiah 25, and verse 6, speaking of this coming kingdom, which Jesus says that he's going to be there and we're we're going to celebrate with him. And he says, in uh, the prophet Isaiah says, in 25, 6, On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. I read that, by the way, and I can't help but think about uh, John's gospel right when Jesus is invited to the wedding a uh, feast at Cana and the party's well underway and in fact the wine's running out and he makes wine out of water right not just a little about 180 gallons and it's taken to the to the you know the toastmaster the head of the feast and what does he say about it? He says, most people serve the good stuff first and the cheap stuff in the end when your taste buds are... You know, I'm adding that in, but you know what I'm saying. We don't really know. But you have saved the best for last. Why did Jesus do that? Was he just concerned that, hey, you know, the party is kind of dying out. Let's liven it up. No. No. This was, a, this was his sign. This was, this was an illustration that he came to bring the kingdom. That the kingdom of God is at hand. And it's at hand in the person of the king. So if the king is here, then you better expect a party. A good one. And that's what the prophet says. And that's what he does. That's what he does. The best of meats. Filet mignon. Filet mignon. Luke chapter 13, verse 29. Jesus says, people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. Again, the, the, the picture of the feast. It's not going to be a thousand year long feast. Okay? I, think, I think there's going to be a feast, a, a literal feast, but I, but I think the feast is, is, in one sense, just an illustration of the incredible joy that will, that will um, accompany us in the presence of Christ his kingdom. Luke 22, verse 28 and following, you are those who have stood by me in my trials. And just as my father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. And you will sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. There it is again. So there's this constant uh, picture of the feast, constant picture of the feast. So what Jesus says is, I have brought the new covenant It comes by my sacrifice, by by my death, by my spilling of my blood for you. By the way, I think the resurrection is here too. How is he going to celebrate it with them in the kingdom unless he is what? Raised from the dead. Raised from the dead. And he says, yes, I'm going to die. But I'm bringing the kingdom with me. And we're going to celebrate it together. The kingdom is still future, beloved. It is not here. It is not here. It cannot be here until Israel is ready to enter in. For it is ultimately her kingdom. The prophet Zechariah tells us there is a time coming when the Lord returns, right? To, to rescue his ancient people when they are on the verge of extinction at the, at the hands of the Antichrist. That then and there they will look on him whom they have pierced. And they will mourn for him and they will, they will be ready to enter into his kingdom. Jesus said to him, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You and I, by faith in Christ, are, have citizenship in that kingdom. When it comes, we'll be there. We'll participate in the feast. Something unlike anything we have ever known or ever even dreamed of. So in light of all of that, how do we live? How do we live? Or let me ask you another question. Suppose you were invited to a beautiful and lavish wedding. And the invitation card says that following the ceremony, there will be a seven-course catered meal. Would you swing by McDonald's on the way and fill up with a Right? We wouldn't do that. That would be so foolish. So foolish to do that. Of course we wouldn't. And yet, and yet, we, we fill our bodies, our minds, our souls with junk food. When there's reserved a place for us at the, at the banquet table. As we pass the elements, it's certainly the right time to confess our sin. We don't eat in order to confess, but it is the right time. If there are things that need to be confessed between you and the Lord, it's time to confess them. If there is a breach in a relationship between you and another believer it's the right time to make it right, to confess it. As we partake of these elements together, it's the right time to realign our priorities. Bread and the wine symbolize the Savior's body and blood for us. When we eat and we drink, it symbolizes our personal union with Him. And it strengthens our faith. When we do it together, it symbolizes the reality that we are all one here in the body of Christ. We eat and we drink. Promotes unity and fellowship. All of that loaded into that one little cracker and half ounce cup of juice, huh? Man, I'm going to pray, and maybe you would proceed to the back and get yourselves ready as I do. Father, thank you for this passage. Thank you for the opportunity to explore it together on a Sunday that we have set aside to take of the Lord's table. How appropriate that is. Our Father, it's good for us to be realigned periodically. Have our, have our thinking corrected if it's strayed, to be reminded of truths that we have known and have slipped from our, from our minds. And so, our Father, as we are to come to this table together, we now know what we should be doing, know what we should be recalling, know what we should be rejoicing in, Know what we should be longing for. And so, Father, I pray for these elements the bread and the juice, the bread and the cup, as we take it together. May your Spirit do His good work in us. I ask in Jesus' name, Amen.